This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 12, Episode 6. This is Writing Excuses, Variations on Third Person. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're limited. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Dan. And I'm omniscient. (laughs) Well, we'll just let you talk then. (laughs) Tell us everything, Howard. I'm an unreliable narrator. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently you're also first person. You don't belong here. He does not belong here. Mm. She said. (laughs) So... Just like last month we were talking first person, this month we are talking third person. And there are two dominant forms of third person with some kind of different variations on each. Let's talk about omniscient, shall we? Yes. So omniscient is when uh, the narrator knows everything that's going on. This is a style that has largely fallen out of fashion. Frequently when we see it, it is... uh, it is used in something that is older, like Jane Austen often uses omniscient. Um, so Audrey Niffenegger used it more recently in, uh, oh, in in a book whose title has gone out of my head. Um, Gail, which is, Gail Carriger's Parasol Protectorate series uh, uses third-person omniscient. So what is third-person omniscient? Okay, so the idea behind third-person omniscient, and, and for example, um, Charles Dickens used this all the time, pretty much exclusively. And so you have, you know, Oliver Twist and Bill Sykes in the same scene, and they're talking, and one of them's scared of the other, and one of them doesn't care about the other, and so on. And the narrator knows exactly what each of them are thinking. And when they take an action, the narrator knows why Bill takes this action and tells you why, and he tells you what Bill is thinking, and then he'll jump over into Oliver Twist's head and say something, and then maybe he'll talk about Artful Dodger and why he's doing what he's doing, as opposed to limited third person in which the entire story would be just from Oliver Twist, and you never know, you'd never get to see behind the curtains. You never get to see inside Bill Sykes' head or anyone else. Now, I see, this is, again, just my brand division. I'm not the ultimate authority in this, but I see two general kinds of omniscient. Um, There is a type of omniscient where there is this present narrator, um, almost like the person who does the little blurbs at the beginning of Schlock Mercenary Comics, the comic book narrator who is telling you a story. And this person occasionally interjects things, um, and you get the, but he didn't know is this mm-hmm. sort of thing that's almost a hybrid first person. Yeah, right? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is yes. written that way, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, where the narrator is constantly commenting on things and has a very distinct voice of its own, is not present as a character the way first yes. person would be, and in fact is never named, but is absolutely their own personality. It's like the editor. The yeah. editor yeah. is speaking. Um, the other one is what I call omniscient body hopper. <laughs> Body Hopper yeah. is um, the quintessential example of this. Is I what I is Dune is what I usually bring yeah, up, and this is where there doesn't feel to be a present narrator, but every character's thoughts are on display, usually with only a paragraph as a breaker between moving between viewpoints, and you're in one someone's head, and then suddenly, and then Brandon thought this, and then Howard thought this. Yeah, and this is one of those things that that 
one of the reasons it has gone out of fashion, particularly in science fiction and fantasy, is that when done poorly, it's very, very confusing. And so you will hear people talking about head hopping. Uh, and this is usually when the, the narrator or the, the author thinks that they are re- writing in limited third person and slips and shows us what is going on in another character's head and they're not really writing in omniscient. The, the difference between head hopping and omniscient is often related to the way you set things up. And we're going to talk about that more in detail when we get into how to do these things. But I did want to flag that, that head hopping is a flaw, but the reason it's a flaw is not because, oh, you're doing omniscient. It's because it's confusing. Yeah, and you would bring up the kind of third, which is one you shouldn't be doing, which is the accidental omniscient. Yes. <laughs> and this is the one I run across the most with my students, is they aren't conscious of the difference between limited and omniscient. They know kind of instinctively that you should be doing some things like this, but they've watched so many shows that have things like, but what they didn't know was, and things well, like that. I think more than that is the, is the fact that the books we are forced to study in high school English classes, for the most part are omniscient That's because true. they were written 100 years ago. And so the ones we're reading for fun are one way, the ones we're reading in school are another way, and until you learn where the lines are, you keep blending them accidentally. Yeah, the, the book that I was trying to remember the name of is Her Fearful Symmetry by Audrey Niffenegger, and it is clearly written in omniscient. I bounced off of it initially because I am so trained to read tight third person that even though she had flagged and it was very clearly omniscient, I kept going, but why am I in someone else's head? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I just want to flag this as being a fashion thing, and when you get into other forms of other genres... Uh, romance uses omniscient all the time, um, and, and contemporary literature uses it all the time. It is not; it is definitely not a uh, a problem. Yeah, you're not breaking a rule if you use it. Um, I'd like to point out that uh, there's, and I think uh, Scott Card is the one who uh, hung the label on this third person cinematic, which yeah. is where what we are doing is following a camera around, uh, you know, a group of people. Um, we're not getting into their heads much, right. if at all, but the point of view we have has the voice of someone who is not one of those characters. Mm. Um, yeah. And the, the, thing that I, the thing that I've noticed in, in, some, in some student writing and in a lot of first drafts is that uh, often we want to open with an establishing shot and the establishing shot will be written in third-person cinematic. There isn't anybody who is seeing... None of the characters are seeing what it is you are describing. You are describing a setting for me uh, as if you are a camera, and that's third-person cinematic. And that's actually a tool you can use. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. The Wheel of Time, every book starts with a third-person cinematic zoom-in, almost almost more present narrator. You're not Mm -hmm. sure, but it's an omniscient moment. In those books. Yeah, Guy Gavriel Kay uses this to wonderful effect for uh, establishing atmosphere and, and general geography before he gets deep into a scene. Yeah, for the most part, cinematic is best employed as a tool here and there. Um, and because it runs the risk, because you never enter anyone's head, of distancing you from the characters. It can be done in an entire novel, but it's, it's rare. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's stop for our book of the week. You are going to tell us about Zen Cho's book. Yes, so we've talked about Zen Cho's Sorcerer to the Crown before, which I, I love. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because she deploys both omniscient third person and limited third person in the book. And she goes very smoothly back and forth between the two. And it is, it's written as if it's in the early 1800s. So she's using the omniscient to give you the sense of that style, that, that voice. But then she's catering to a contemporary audience by going into limited third when she needs to. And she uses both of them, I think, to very good effect. It's beautifully written. She has nailed voice on that. So it's a really good example to, uh, to look at what those two styles do and how to use them both as a tool and the way you can actually use both of them in the same book. Excellent. Let's talk about limited then. All right. What is third person limited? So third-person limited is where you are limited to a single viewpoint character. You only see the things they see. You only hear and experience the things they experience. And it is used because it gives you the benefits of being... Some of the benefits of first person, which we've talked about previously, where you can understand the character's thoughts. Those are some of the things that are included in that. But it also allows you occasionally to back the camera up just a little bit and describe things that the character might not necessarily notice. So it gives you a little bit more freedom to kind of paint the room, so to speak as well as letting you know what's going on inside the character's head. Yeah, usually the big advantage that third has over first is dealing with large casts. You can Mm -hmm. jump heads when you need to in third limited. Usually if you're going to do third limited, the way to do this is to use at least a line break. Most people use a chapter break. Um, Some use a hybrid of the two. But you're, you're saying, we are done now. And in the first paragraph, ideally the first line, the first name you mention is generally an indication that this is the person's head you're going to be in. If it's not, you have to quickly disabuse us of that notion um, and get us in someone's head. But then we're in that person's head, and you can show an entirely different perspective on other characters, on events, on things that another character might not know. So you can do this very large cast very easily. That's That's, I think, the biggest hurdle with Third Person Limited is switching points of view and making the transition clean and clear every time. The, uh, that, that technique that Brandon mentioned, uh, the name of the character whose point of view you have entered should be the first name you see. It is very, very, very difficult to recover if it's not the first name you see unless there is something very stylistic, very signature in the text that would telegraph the point of view more clearly I than the character's so name I've had so much would. trouble with this um, on it in alpha reads and beta reads. I bounce off it yeah. every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're pattern-seeking creatures, and in the absence of information, we try to, to fill in the gaps with whatever information we have. Uh, Lies of Locke Lamora um, by Scott Lynch is a really good example of a book that has multiple third-person narrators but is very, very clear about whose head you are in at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Especially uh, as that series goes on and they start hopping back and forth in time, he continues to make clear, oh, right now we're in the present, and right now we're in a flashback, yeah. and yeah, so on. I think Red Seas Under Red Skies does that beautifully. 
So this has become the dominant form in science fiction and fantasy. Just like I would say the first person immediate present tense, third person limited past tense is what people will default to in sci-fi fantasy. Why? Why has it become dominant? Um, Any thoughts? Well, I think partly because that's how The Hobbit was written. (laughs) And so it's just become part of our culture. But also I think... What it does really well is it allows you to feel like a storyteller or like you are listening to a storyteller who is going to say, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Now I'm going to tell you this entire story and you're going to get it all through the lens of this one character and you get to know that character well. Um, And so there's a strong storytelling bent to it that just feels right. I am going to go on a much more technical reason. Awesome. I think it's because science fiction and fantasy has to deal with info dumps. Yep. Uh, we have so much technical information that we need the readers to know in order to understand what's going on in the story that sometimes having a narrator who can just say, well, the warp drive was, and and just take a minute to explain the thing, and it's not necessarily something that the character would be thinking about. Now, I, I will say that I think that that the info dump is something that is often very clumsy and there are better ways to handle it. But I think that's one of the reasons that it developed is that early on in our genre, that was pretty much the only way to get across this kind of information. See, that's interesting to say because I agree with that. But at the same time, omniscient seems even better at giving you info dumps because the characters don't have to have the information. And in limited, they kind of do, at least you have to, you you don't give the info dump in the limited viewpoint that doesn't know anything about it. And beyond that, just as an aside, um, though I agree with this, first person is actually, um, lets you cheat on info dumps very easily because you can stick it in character voice, make it entertaining, and get it in. It's harder to do that way, but at the same time, it's like you can do a three-page info dump in first person, and if you do it right, the reader doesn't know yeah. it's been an info dump. Because really, that's a character monologue, yes. and just can be incredibly fun to write. Yeah, Ada Palmer's new book um, is has a ton of these, where she's talking along and, and then says, oh, wait, let me pause and just make sure that you understand this thing. <laughs> and it's great. Uh, the, the You know, I was thinking about what you were just saying, and I, and I remembered... Um, that actually the, the the golden age of science fiction, but the the early days of science fiction were uh, were very much driven by short fiction, and in short fiction, the fewer characters you have on the page, the easier it is to handle. I wonder if that was yeah, that could totally have something to do with it. I also wonder if like the rise of television and movies mm-hmm. have have done this, where it seems like. You know, you're watching your television show, and it's like, now we're here with this person. Now we're here with this person. Now we're here with this person. And Third Limited actually best mimics that in book form in this sort of, now we're in his head, and we get his story, and you're allowed to kind of do this epic scope. But now we're jumping all the way across the world to this person, and it may be driven by that. I'm not sure. And let's not forget, we mentioned this already, but... Third Person Limited really is kind of this beautiful hybrid of omniscient and first, where you get to see everything, but you also get to know the character really well and intimately. And that is its own reward, I think, in a lot of ways. I, any, anytime you ask, you know, why is a thing this way, uh, we are going to construct a narrative that <laughs> yeah. supports yeah. something that we love. Uh, I personally think that one of the reasons we see books that are written in a different in a, in a given way is because 
the books that the authors are reading tends to be written that way. Oh, yeah. If you want to write something that isn't in third-person limited, you got to read some stuff that's not written in third-person limited. Um, and when I see something like uh, uh, Alyssa Wong's um, Nebula Winner, uh, You'll Surely Drown If You Stay, um, is written in second-person present tense, and I never would have thought to write something like that. Holy cow, it is. I did yeah. not notice that when I was reading it, because <laughs> I was just so pretty. Yes, it's, it's beautiful, and it's brilliant, and it's pretty, but until I had read something like that, I didn't even have an idea in my head of how it could be done. So, uh, you know, the question of why do we write in given ways, uh, we can argue until we're blue in the face about what the various advantages are, but experimenting and reading something that's just weird is a really good tool. It's very interesting to me as kind of an armchair historian of the epic fantasy genre and science fiction to a lesser extent, seeing how this has developed. Because back in the 80s, you will find books that have like what we would call viewpoint errors all over the place. They're third limited. It's starting to develop. But once in a while, mm-hmm. you're in someone else's viewpoint unexpectedly. There's one two or two paragraphs in Ender's Game that are from Bean's viewpoint out of nowhere. The Hobbit yeah. is... Well, Bilbo it, writing this story down and occasionally has these moments of what Bilbo didn't know yet, but he's writing about himself. Mm-hmm. As a, and then it eventually kind of stabilizes in the 90s, maybe driven by the Wheel of Time's popularity. As Howard is saying, it's what we were reading, mm-hmm. a lot of us, and so we just end up reading it a lot and refining it in epic fantasy into this thing that um, that's became more rigid than it used to be. Uh, it's very interesting for me to look at. You know, I, I also actually wonder with that is, is, like, how much of it is from the rise of fan fiction and writing groups mm. of people saying, yeah, this is really confusing. I don't know I don't know who is thinking that. And people just started to make it easier. So, <laughs> it's entirely the, possible. One, yeah. of the things, one of the things that's growing out of this, and, and this is a little bit of meta discussion, uh, you know, here we are beginning our second month of season 12, and, you know, we, we're talking a little bit about the things that you read influence the things that you write. The voices you listen to yeah. affect the things that you write. And I'm really looking forward to what comes out of our student body, for lack of a better word, this year, because they're going to be getting so many different voices mm-hmm. behind these microphones. Well, I think we're going to call it here. Um, we're going to give you some homework. And my homework for you this week is the same as last month's homework, except now with third person. I want you to take the same passage that you may have written in Limited and try the two different forms of omniscient. Try the one that there's like a narrator that's able to say what they didn't know and things like this. And try the one where you're just body hopping with every paragraph. Or take something you've written in omniscient, try it in cinematic, try it in Limited. I want you to experiment with these tools and find out how they go. We will be back next week with the Chicago team where we'll be talking really about how to describe and do description through the lens of a third-person narrator. And we are really excited, again, to have you guys with us for Season 12. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson.
If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 